Welcome to Teaching Thursdays with Kevin Morris, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast brought to you by my generous supporters over at Patreon.com. If you enjoy this podcast and the content that I release on Better Bible Reading, please consider becoming a patron to help support the show and myself. You can go to Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Better Bible Reading. We're picking things back up in the book of First Peter as our study going verse by verse, section by section in this magnificent New Testament letter. And we're picking things up in verse number eight. We'll take a look at verse number eight through the end of chapter three. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So Peter, having used servants, husbands, and wives as examples for us, now extends his application to all of you, he says, laying out the applications and fruits that we've spoken of as being called good works and honorable conduct. We've spoken of most of these individually already, such as sympathy and tender heart in the ministry of marriage. As we continue looking at this letter, Peter gives the new covenant warning and also prevailing in the Old Covenant, regarding the repaying of evil for evil. Peter warns that this would be inconsistent with the example of Christ as the suffering servant. The second level of this warning is a positive command. It's not only that we should not repay evil for evil, 
but on the contrary bless, for to this you are called. So Peter's undoubtedly making an application to the coming citation from Psalm 34, which we just read. But it's easy for us to see that he is also making a reference to the words of Jesus spoken in the Sermon on the Mount. And Peter is likely an eyewitness to that Sermon on the Mount as he's alongside everyone else in attendance. So we see this in Luke 6.28, for example, where our Lord gives the command to love our enemies. When Peter says, to this you were called, I think he's really referencing that command given by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. If you look at verse 13, which I'll read it again for you. Verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? When we think about Psalm 34's use in Peter's letter, we must look at his own application so that we may understand what we should be drawing out from all of this. His emphatic conclusion here, if you want to put it that way, is a rhetorical question whereby we know the answer to who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good. Of course, the answer is no one. Peter's phrase, zealous for what is good, implies something significant for the Christian life. Consider these points from Psalm 34. Keep his tongue from evil. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. Notice that these phrases are not passive in sense, but they're active. They're full of initiative. In a word, it should not consider the Christian life as to who may harm us so long as we're zealous for what is good. We should be more concerned with blessing our enemies than whether they curse us or not. Now that's easier said than done, certainly. But this is the way to love life and see good days based on the passage that Peter is quoting here. This leads us into the true essence of Christian living, which is to honor Christ the Lord as holy. You see that in verse number 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. There are many aspects and layers to this, which is no surprise since the essence of Christian living is dynamic and needs to be applied to every facet of life. But for us, Peter does take the opportunity to render a summary of what it looks like particularly to honor Jesus in this way. And we see it in the second half of verse 15, where he says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. There's a true sense for us as believers in which our lives are on display. We're examined, promoted to the world. And you might ask why? Well, it's because we have something glorious to display, the glory of Christ. And this is the tremendous way where we are to make such a display to the world, that our lives will present outward appearances of hopelessness, i.e. suffering and trials and things like that. And yet, we will have a tangible, clear hope 
present and shining through us. That hope that is in us is the honoring of Christ the Lord is holy. It is the hope of Christ, the hope from Christ. And it is transcendent in nature. It's unable to be thwarted or stolen. It's that inheritance kept in heaven for us, chapter 1. It's not subject to circumstances or outward appearances. And this is something Christians have exclusively because it speaks of our union with Jesus Christ. That is something only Christians possess. And very quickly, by way of warning, Peter gives us the stipulation of this defense of our hope. That we should give such a defense an apologetic, that Greek word apologia, with, he says, gentleness and respect. Being an exclusive hope, an assurance to us, it's easy to flaunt it, right? It's easy to flaunt our hope in such a way as to let it be an occasion for pride. That's the norm for us, by the way. If, if we do have hope, if we're not devastated by trials and suffering, then sometimes we can almost have the badge of martyrdom honor upon us, right? You, you had this instance in the first century, especially, second century as well, where martyrdom was almost elevated to this level of uh, premium Christianity, right? You were more of a Christian if you suffered martyrdom. It was almost this double helping of spiritual food, if you want to put it that way. So then those who didn't suffer, those who didn't uh, face martyrdom, were almost understood to be lower-level Christians. And there's a lot of historical dynamics for this. There's a lot of reasons where Christianity is attacked more violently during certain eras than others. And so it's hard to really come on board with this mindset. The Bible never tells us that we're a better Christian for suffering. It just tells us if suffering should be God's will for us, then we must endure that faithfully. But Christians seem to have, in today's day and age, this superficial martyrdom where if people hate us on social media, if we don't have any friends, if we have a really small church, we could almost assume that it's because we're faithful. And that might be the case. It's possible that that could be the case. But it could also just as well be the case because we're simply arrogant and unpleasant to be around. This is Peter's warning here that this resolve for faithfulness, this ability to speak to our hope in Christ should be received, should be understood with gentleness and respect. It's easy to become overconfident in our Christianity to let it be an occasion to pride. But Peter says this must not be done because it's directly tied to our suffering. And suffering makes us partners with Christ in his 
humiliation. And if we're partners with Christ in his humiliation, we should be exemplifying the kind of character that Christ himself exemplified in his suffering. And that certainly wasn't pride and arrogance by any stretch of the imagination. Our good conscience and good behavior are the confirmation that such hope that we have is not a proud hope, but a pure hope. Finally, Peter shows the connection between our suffering and Christ's suffering by speaking of enduring suffering that is unjust. He makes that connection when he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good. You see that? Verse 17 is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, before we try to unpack that on its own, we need to realize the, the answer or the defense of such a statement that Peter gives. Why is it better to suffer for doing good? The answer is given to us in verse 18. For or because, because Christ also suffered. Now, we think about Jesus' suffering. Would we say that his suffering was just or unjust? Would we say that Jesus' suffering was for doing good or for doing evil? And of course, the answer is for doing good. But we often, as imperfect people, as Christians who seek to find as much glory as we can and avoid as much hardship as possible, that we look at suffering, we weigh our lives on a scale of spirituality and conclude that whatever suffering we're facing is unjust because we've been doing pretty good. Or we just automatically assume, maybe I sinned in some certain way because of the suffering I'm facing. But Peter models the way that we're supposed to understand our suffering, our connection with Christ. And he does this by making us look to the template of Jesus' own suffering. Jesus suffered for doing good, not for doing evil. And he's still doing good, was met with suffering. So we must conclude that although God does use suffering, to discipline us as a loving father, that there's not a one-to-one correspondence between the level of suffering we're facing and the level of wickedness or the level of godliness that we're exemplifying. Instead, suffering is, matter of fact, according to God's will. Now, God could have a whole host of purposes in his will, but we must submit to whatever suffering we face, whether it's physical, whether it's circumstantial, as his people, because, verse 18, for Christ also suffered. So as it was said, the reason we are to suffer in an undeserving way, and that undeserved suffering could still be a gracious working of God, is because Christ suffered precisely in this way. And we know that Christ, the suffering servant, was the manifestation of God's greatest work, God's most gracious work, the work for which we will worship him and glorify him for all eternity. We know that without this unjust suffering, 
we would have remained alienated from God. As the writer of Hebrews points out, he suffered outside the camp, outside the gate, so as to meet us there and make safe, welcomed passage into the presence of God. What follows in this passage is debated. Verses 18 through the rest of the chapters debated as to the meaning, including who the subjects and objects are and mine. So let's try to deal with it. Grammatically speaking, it is a difficult passage to follow, yet we must point out what makes most sense to the context. Many think that being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit refers to Christ. Just as those who assert certain thoughts about verse 20 will point out. Maybe it might be best for me to reread 18 through 22 if you don't have a Bible handy just so you can remember what it is that we're working with here. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, there's a handful of things that we know for sure about this passage, right? We understand the correspondence of baptism. We understand the resurrection of Jesus being mentioned. We understand his suffering. We even understand that somewhere in here, there's a reference to Noah and the ark. Undoubtedly, there's a connection of the floodwaters to the waters of baptism and this idea of deliverance. But what we don't understand is this idea, especially in verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. That whole phraseology there is up for grabs uh, in terms of interpretation. This next part that we just read, again, needs to have some work done here. We, we need to figure out what is happening. We need to figure out what's being referred to. I think what we have happening here is Peter is referring to how we are brought near to God by looking contextually to chapter 4, verse 6, where we see this specifically said by Peter. Let's skip ahead and let me just read chapter 4, verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. 
we'll deal with that in the next episode, chapter 4, verse 6. But just note that that is more of a clear passage that should shed light on uh, an unclear passage which we're dealing with right now. So verse 19, this next part hosts a variety of views, verse 19, and I believe that John Calvin helps make sense of one crucial word that may translate uh, as prison or maybe not. There's debate as to that one word, uh, which we see in the ESV rendered as prison, in which he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, that word Greek can mean prison, but it also refers to the idea of a watch, a keeping watch. So we might consider a watchtower, or somebody who's standing watch in the night. Somebody that's doing so is waiting, hastening the arrival of something. Naturally, if we render it as prison, then we might think of punishment, and Peter's entire argument is reinterpreted to mean quite a different thing than what I believe that we've seen so far in context. So verse 19 might be a segue from us to the saints of the flood, namely Noah and his family, or it may still speak of Christ's earthly time frame, whereby many through the Holy Spirit were in watching, hastening his arrival and preaching ministry. But in either case, I believe that those of prison are not meaning here fallen angels or deceased men, but saints living by the Spirit, whether Peter intends us explicitly or Noah. Verse 20 does explicitly bridge us to the context of Noah as the people Peter has in mind by mentioning to us that what we see as a great parallel. We now, alive by Christ's victory, are in prison, in a night watch. We're hastening the coming of Christ, which is our salvation. We're doing so in the midst of suffering, in endurance of unjust things, as this world continues to rebel against God, and we find ourselves, in some manner of speaking, caught up in the middle of that. We may wish to count this moment of watching as proof of God's slowness, and yet Peter reminds us that the same scenario, the vileness of the world, and the seeming hopelessness of the saints in Noah's heritage was not a record of God's being slow, but rather of God's being patient. Their hope in God was transcendent, and they fared well, as they were brought safely through water. And this is also our hope. That the ark is coming for us, we will be safe in his arms, even if it is eight against the world. We have a reason for hope, because Christ has brought us near to God, into the ark where safety and salvation reside. Peter makes a further analogy of this event in verse 21 by ascribing the flood to our baptism. Our baptism does not find its hope in the waters any more than Noah found his hope in the flood waters. However, baptism is a showering, an identification of a good conscience, namely that we declare ourselves near to God within his safety and covenant care not lost and drowned out in the course of the world's affairs. 
It is tied directly to Jesus' resurrection as signifying that such a thing has been done once and for all. And the culmination of it all is the act of Christ's ascension. For here we have a clear, concrete explanation of where Christ did go, to the right hand of God. This is significant because it speaks of Christ's victory, his present reigning power as victor. Peter says, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Frankly, this is the reason for our hope. This is the context in which we must hold fast in our suffering, because Every bout of suffering we endure is allowed and assigned by the Christ who has all powers subjected to him. We have no reason to fear. And this is Peter's great point being made to us. But my admonition to you is study verses 18 through 22 because there is debate as to what the proper interpretation is. Are we speaking of Jesus descending into the realm of the undead and proclaiming the gospel to people who are in some kind of spiritual prison and they need another chance? People assume that that's what this passage is talking about. I'm not sold on that interpretation at all. There's difficulty as to the Greek subjects and objects being mentioned. Who is the he? Who is the they? What is the time frame from Peter's application presently to historical analysis all the way from the time of Noah to the time of Christ's resurrection? What's happening there? I advise you to get a good study Bible and to read the different interpretations, but I think that we must look at what is clearly being mentioned. I think we must look at what the clearest and most plain meaning would be instead of having to do interpretive dances in order to get to the proper kind of explanation that we desire, or the most provocative one, we might say. Very simply, Peter wants us to have the kind of patience that Noah had. He wants us to understand that we're not only in this world in the kind of violent environment that Noah and his family were in, but that we're also in Christ just as safe as Noah and his family were in the ark, sealed in, preserved, and kept safely by God himself. The very fact that we find ourselves surrounded by tumultuous waters and yet not destroyed is the same testimony that we have God with us as our God, just as Noah did, and we're protected, we're kept safe in his arms. And the reason that we hope in the midst of a fallen world, the reason that we endure suffering even for doing good, Though we're justified, no longer condemned as rebels, but loved as saints and children of God, the reason that we can go on day by day is because, verse 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
That's our hope. Our Savior lives, so our hope remains alive. And not only does he live, but verse 22, he's gone to heaven, he's at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, he has all authority, no exceptions. Thanks for listening to Teaching Thursdays, and I look forward to being with you for another episode real soon.